All right, y'all, going back to Romans 8. Romans 8. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. Uh, if you're using your apps, great. Open them up. Go ahead, go to Romans 8. Um, I learned fairly early in life to avoid Hallmark movies. Um, not because of the romance and, and that stuff. Um, you know, that formulaic kind of lost boy meets saving girl. It's all great. Um, that's not the stuff that got me. That's not the stuff that, that interested me. The stuff, the stuff that got me was the dad stuff. Um, I remember watching, and I remember where I was. I don't exactly remember when it was, but I remember where I was. I was in San Diego. I was at home. Um, I, was, I was home alone, and that's an important piece because um, I was thankful I was home alone. I just, for whatever reason, I'm watching dumb daytime TV, which was, used to be a thing before Netflix and all that. You know, you had to actually turn on the TV and change channels. Um, but there was something on, and, and I don't know if it was Hallmark or not. Ricky Schroeder was in it, um, but it was basically about some kid and his dad. And it for, followed the formula. Those things are always the same. There's conflict, there's, there's separation, there's, there's anguish, and then it always ends with reunification, right? With reconciliation, with that moment of, of joy. And, and I'm sitting there at home, completely alone, um, sobbing my eyes out. Like, just sobbing, ugly, crying my eyes out. And to this day... I have learned I have to be careful with movies that are about dads. Like, for real. I hate to cry in public. I hate it, especially this sort of stuff, because when it gets me, like, I, I go from zero to 100 like that. Like, I just go from nothing to, like, bawling my eyes out uncontrollably. Um, and, and, and here's the thing. You know, I know I got daddy issues. You know, I get it. I've, I've talked to my therapist. Um, here's the thing. I know. And here's, here's the thing. I know that I have deep unmet longings for a father. I just do. Now, my situation is not going to be the same as everybody else's, right? Um, but I think everybody has those longings. Now, you know, I was raised with, a, with an absent father. Um, some of you, like I, I thought as a kid growing up, like, man, it would just be so cool if my dad were home. Like I saw these, weren't a lot of families, honestly, where I lived where dad was at home. It wasn't until later that I actually, isn't that weird? It wasn't until I was in college that I actually met families that, that functioned, that actually had dads at home. And I thought, man, that's perfect. You, you had everything. And it was only later, even later than that, that I realized that even those homes were, were even the perfect dads. Like maybe you were, you were raised thinking your dad was absolutely perfect. There comes a point in your life where you realize he wasn't. It just happens because your dad isn't perfect. Your dad is a flawed person. And as a result, there are going to be patterns in the home, no matter how good they were. Um, that you're going to have to differentiate from and, and learn how to grow through and, and, um, and those sorts of things. Now, here's the thing. I remember um, how much Romans 8 impacted me because here's the thing. I believe that our relationship with our Father is one of the most critical relationships we have to understanding ourselves. Um, we're going to have to, in some ways, deal with the legacy of our fathers. There's just no way around it, every single one of us. Because here's the thing, is we come to see ourselves through the eyes of our fathers. Every single one of us craves the blessing of the Father. And what ends up happening is we inadvertently or intentionally, I don't know how it works, but, but we come to see ourselves through the eyes of our Father. And we internalize that message. So if you have an absent father, you internalize a message that you're not worthy to be seen. You're, you're not worthy to be loved. You, you have to work really, really hard to be noticed, right? If, you, if you're raised with a perfectionist father, then, then you have to perform and you have to be perfect to be accepted. If you're raised with an angry father, you get it. You come to see yourself through the eyes of your father and as a result of that, that shapes how you see yourself. It shapes how you see your world. It, it shapes how you see um, your place in it, right? I remember the first time I read Romans 8, I was, I was at Emmaus Bible College. Um, I was 17. I had just become a believer. I was reading through the book of Romans. And um, 
I got to these verses that we're going to cover today. And I was thankful that I had a room all to myself because once again, I was broken and ugly crying. Um, but this time, it wasn't from sorrow. It was from a shocking sense of overwhelming joy. And if I'm honest, it wasn't just overwhelming joy. It was mixed in with a certain measure of unbelief. Like this news seemed so good, it had to be untrue. One of the legacies of my childhood is the legacy of broken promises. And, and as a result of that, I have a very difficult time often simply taking a promise at face value. And I read this and I'm like, man, this is incredibly good news. I sure hope it's true. <laughs> and my life has in many ways been the journey of learning to believe this of progressively coming to believe this at a deeper and deeper level. That when I approach God, I'm not approaching him as judge. I'm approaching him as dad. That he is my father. That I'm not just the rebel who is reconciled, right? He didn't just invite me into his house to become a, a servant or, or, or he adopted me to be his son. This is profoundly good news because it changes everything. When you come to see yourself through the eyes of your heavenly father, it changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see the world and it changes how you see how you fit in to the world. And it's incredibly good news. So let's take a look at our passage. We're looking at Romans 8 and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 17. I'm going to read 8 through 17 again for context. We keep jumping in right in the middle of a thought, so it's important to get the context. All right, so starting at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, um, I want to remind you where we are in the context, right? We're jumping into the middle of a thought, and as a result, I, I have to kind of reorient us. I know that, that we have, in every sermon, we have people jumping in who haven't heard previous sermons, and I also know it's good for us to, to get reoriented to the text, right? The end of Romans 7, the end of Romans 7, Paul ends with this compelling, personal revelation of a dilemma, right? He, he says, I love God. I love the law of God. I love Jesus, but I find in me a restless energy that wants to rebel against God. I find within me this desire that's at work, right? I love the law of God, but I see a different law at work in the members of my body that lead me away from God. And that leads me to this internal conflict where I'm doing the very things I hate and I'm doing the things that I should be doing from motivations that are self-centered, self-glorying, self-focused. I just can't get away from this thing, right? And, and he ends with this, this, this appeal. Who will deliver me from this body of this death? And immediately he transitions into the blessing of the Father, right? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Um, he begins with a proclamation like he doesn't solve the dilemma of the problem. He doesn't spend any time trying to resolve or give advice. He simply moves immediately from the dilemma to the solution. And the solution is the blessing of the Father, right? I'm not condemned. I'm worthy of condemnation, but I'm not condemned. 
Why? Because he was condemned on my behalf. Jesus came, lived the life I should have lived, a life of obedience, a life of performance, a life of of, of continually submitting to God as Father, and then died the death I deserved to die, right? He took my condemnation in his body on the tree. He died as my substitute in my place on my behalf, taking my judgment and satisfying God's justice so that when he rose from the dead, I could stand in his blessing. I could stand in his active obedience because he had taken my active disobedience. And because of that, I now stand justified before God. That's the blessing of the Father. He sent Jesus to do this work that I might receive its benefit. And as a result, I am now no longer in the flesh. I am now in the Spirit. Let me remind you, using my handy-dandy modern technology, um, what this looks like, right? This, this diagram is very simply my attempt to simplify some of the complex thoughts that Paul is trying to explore in the entire book of Romans, honestly, but culminating in this really, really dense passage that's so full of meaning, right? What he reveals to us is that before we were believers, we were in the flesh. Uh, That very simply means that we were controlled by the internal disordered desires of rebellion. Every single one of us are born with this restless need to be independent from God, to try to find the fullness and flourishing of life apart from God, right? So we look to the things that God has created to do for us and to be for us what only God can do and be. We look to our jobs, our relationships, our accomplishments, our, our Twitter feeds, our, our, our platforms, the applause of strangers, um, the admiring glances of, of passerbys. We, we look to so many different things to try to communicate to our souls that we are worthy, that we are secure, that we are loved, that, that we are worthy of respect, that we, we, all of those things, right? These restless desires that try to find life, the fullness and flourishing of life in places you can't find it. That continual uh, pursuing of idolatry, of raising things up that aren't God and making them gods in our life. And as a result of that, we live in a realm of death. Death means separation, not the cessation of being, but the cutting off from life. So our first parents, when they sinned against God, were cut off spiritually. They died spiritually because they were separated from God. When they died physically, their souls were separated from their bodies. They died physically because they were separated from their bodies. They didn't cease to exist. We were created in the image of God. We are eternal beings. We will eternally exist. What a terrifying thought that those who are here will exist forever separated from the God that ultimately created them to rejoice in his presence, to find their life in his presence, right? That, but that's the challenge is that we move from death to death. We move from separation to separation because we're driven continually by disordered desires that ultimately uh, manifest themselves in sin. Now, again, to remind you, the word that Paul uses for sin means to miss the mark. And what that means is, is that we're continually shooting for the wrong thing. Our disordered desires point us to something that isn't actually the fullness and flourishing of life. So so even if you succeed in getting there, it doesn't take you where you want to go. Even if you accomplish what you've set out to do, it's not going to give you what you hoped it would give you, right? Let's say you get the promotion. Let's say you make your first million. Let's say you, you land a date with the girl. Let's say whatever it is, at the end of the day, once you get past the exhilaration of initial anticipation... You're going to be left with residual disappointment and growing despair. Because whatever it is you accomplish will never give you what you hoped it would give you. It will simply awaken a new aching hunger for more. Now God threw into this realm law. Law was um, the codified Mosaic law. Uh, was his way of basically saying, look, I want to show you how bad your situation is. I'm going to give you a perfect tool to get out of it. Obey, you'll be blessed. Disobey, you'll be cursed. And of course, when you're driven by disordered desires and you're moving from separation to separation and everything you do misses the mark, you take a perfect tool and you turn it into a horrible weapon of self-destruction towards you and destruction toward others. And that, in fact, was God's purpose. God never gave the law to help people get out of this realm. He gave the law to make them aware of how horrible it is. That that no matter what you do, even if you're doing your best with the best tool, what's going to be happening is you're going to disobey and you're simply 
at your best, I mean, honestly, when you think you're succeeding, you're going to be filled with pride. And when you think you're failing, you're going to be filled with shame. But at the end of the day, you're just going to be working from death to death. The law simply exposes what's wrong and condemns it. That's all it can do. It has no power to fix what, what drives what's wrong. It has no power to change the internal disordered desires. It can simply expose them and condemn them. I want you to see this is a bounded square out of which you cannot deliver yourself. There's nothing you can do to get out of that prison. There's nothing you can do to fix yourself. Every self-improvement project, um, while it holds the promise of the fullness and flourishing of life, at the end of the day is going to leave you exactly where you started, moving from death to death, separation to separation. You will never be able to escape this. This is hopeless, and it's terrifying. That's why we needed grace. And that's why God sent Jesus to ultimately live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died, so that he could pay the price of our sin, he could pay the price of our cosmic treason, he could pay the price of our rebellion. And having paid the price, if we give that to him, we receive in response his righteousness. When we believe in Jesus, the only thing that can deliver us out of this is grace, God's undeserved, unmerited love. And when we believe in Jesus, we have a new standing before God. We no longer are in the flesh, we are in the spirit. Not because we worked our way out, not because we obeyed our way out, not because we did religious things, but simply because we received a gift. And in receiving that gift, we have a new standing before God, and that standing is in the spirit. And in the spirit, we have life, meaning we're connected to God. Why? Because the spirit of God actually indwells us. When you believe in Jesus, you not only receive the gift of forgiveness, you receive the gift of the spirit. He actually comes and resides within you. Now, what part of your body is in, I have no idea. Okay, I don't get it, way above my pay grade. I don't know how all of that stuff works. How does spirit interact with the material world? Mm, don't know. What I do know is that scripture reveals that he is internally working within us, in our motives, okay? Um, and, and that he is speaking to us and relating to us. And, and, and as a result of that, that's life. Because God himself is connected to us. We are connected to the source of life. And over the course of this, this process, we are moving from life to life, from intimate connection with God into a greater experience of that intimate connection with God. We are moving from intimacy to intimacy, of, of loving into to greater loving, of knowing into greater knowing. It is a process of connection into greater connection, right? Because we are moving from righteousness to righteousness. When we believe in Jesus, we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. His active obedience actually is, is the cloak that surrounds us, right? When the Father comes and meets us on the road and, and He lifts us up and He throws a cloak around us, the cloak that He puts over us is the bright and shining cloak of Christ's active obedience, His righteousness. That's now what covers me. But I'm moving from that righteousness into my righteousness. In other words, I'm actually being transformed so that I, I not only receive righteousness, I'm becoming righteous. I'm becoming more and more like Jesus because the Spirit is at work in me, helping me, help setting me free from these disordered desires. I still have the disordered desires. I still have that restless impulse of rebellion. I still have that, that, that love of sin. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 7, right? But I also have this competing force, this greater force, the victorious force of the presence of the Spirit. And because of that, He works through grace. I no longer perform, I receive. I don't work my way into a greater experience of righteousness. I grow my way into a greater experience of righteousness. I learn to walk in the Spirit. Instead of trying to fix myself, I learn to rest in the God who fixes me. Instead of laboring really hard to, 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 to make myself more worthy... I learned to rest in the love of God who has made me worthy. And here's, here's the super counterintuitive part of this, you guys. As you learn to simply rest in the Spirit, you are actually changed. As you learn to respond to love, you will walk in love. It will change your motivations and your behaviors, okay? Now, to be clear, I'm not in any way saying that we're passive in this process, right? We are active because love is always active. We always move toward what we love. We always respond to what we love. And we always act out of love. This is a dynamic, active process of learning to actively respond to the active love of God 
that sets us free from the internal pressures of the flesh. None of that changes this. Our standing before God is absolutely secure. That's justification. When, when, when we are moved into this new realm, it is we didn't earn our way in. We can't earn our way out. I didn't get in by my good works. I'm not going to get out by my bad ones. That was a gift of grace, right? This also is a gift of grace. God will transform us. He will change us. As Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. That is even his work, right? He's at work changing us, transforming us into the image of Christ, okay? So, so that's what we've looked at, that we are now in the Spirit. And as a result of that, in verse 12, we saw when Paul said, so then, brothers, we are debtors. Because we've received this great gift, because we have received this great blessing, we now have an obligation to the God who blessed us. We're now debtors to the one who loved us in this ridiculous way. So, so of course, the question then becomes, what is that debt and how do we pay it? What kind of debt is Paul talking about? And he makes it clear immediately that he's not talking about the kind of debt like we think of it, right? He's like, we're debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, right? We're not debtors to go back to the dynamics of, the, of, of how we, we lived in the flesh under the law to try to pay back a debt. We're debtors to love. And the only way to pay back love is with love. That's the only way it works. When you love somebody, genuinely love somebody, what's the only thing you want back from them? $10. No. You want love. Love is the only thing that pays the debt of love. Everything else is actually an insult. If I give you love and in response you try to give me some material possession, even a, even a material possession that's of great wealth, that's actually an insult. Because the only thing that pays the debt of love is love. And it's in being loved and responding to love that we increase the experience of love and we honor love. The obligation of love is love. Which means that the use of law in response to this love is not only ineffective, it is a violation of love. I want to clarify this because we're getting ready to leave our discussion of the law behind in the book of Romans. Some of you are like, thank God. It is one of the major themes Paul has developed over the course of this letter, okay? We're getting ready in this next section. We're actually going to be moving into a whole new section of the letter, and, and Paul's pretty much done talking about the law for the most part. Um, but I want to drive home this morning what he means, because I think this is so counterintuitive to us that we, it's just hard for us to get. So this morning, what I want to do is, is Ed, before we move into these next verses, I want to establish the difference between the covenant of law and the principle of law. Because I think a lot of times, part of the reason this doesn't sound like it's, it's very intuitive for us is, is you're like, Steve, I get it. I'm not supposed to go back to the law. I was never under the law. I don't know if you've noticed, I'm an American. I'm not Jewish. I wasn't raised in, in Israel. I've never been taught to eat just kosher food. And I'm really not tempted to go back. Like I read the Ten Commandments. I get it. Like those are things I'm supposed to obey. There's 613 other commandments. I'm not really tempted to go try to obey them all. That's not my temptation, Steve. And I get it. I, I, most of you are not going to be like, man, I really wonder if this shirt is a mixed fabric because that's a violation of the law, right? Um, you're not worried about the intricacies of what the Old Testament Mosaic law commands. You're not tempted, in other words, to go back under the Mosaic law to try to earn God's favor. I'll tell you what you are tempted to do. You are tempted to use the principle of the law to try to earn God's favor. You're not tempted to go back under the covenant, but you are tempted to use the principle. What is the principle of the law? Very simply, it's this. Obey and you'll be blessed. Disobey and you'll be cursed. That's the fundamental driving principle of the law. And it is, honestly, what our flesh desires. I want to prove myself. I want to measure up. I want to make myself worthy. Why? Because I have a restless need to be like God. I don't want to be humbly dependent on God. I want to be like God. And my ability to fix myself 
keeps me from feeling helpless and vulnerable and needy. My ability to, to overcome my shortcomings makes me feel like I have some semblance of control. My ability to grow and do better makes me feel entitled to receiving better. Do good, receive good. Do bad, receive bad. The principle of the law. Um, this principle is just as useless in the Christian life as the actual Mosaic law. You're like, Steve, that's really harsh language. It's not mine. Barnabas used that language in Hebrews 7, right? I, I believe it was Barnabas. Uh, in Hebrews 7, he, he says the old covenant is passed because it was weak and useless. It, it couldn't accomplish what we wanted it to accomplish, okay? Um, it cannot deliver. And in fact, it only stirs up more sin. The principle of the law is just as damaging and dangerous to the Christian life as the covenant of the law if we try to use it for spiritual ends. It cannot deliver. It can only awaken sin and condemn us for that sin. That's its sole purpose. So, so to make this a little bit less theoretical, uh-huh, uh-huh. let's go here. Huh. Look at that technology, y'all, that flips. Isn't that great? Modern technology is amazing. Um, all right. Authority, accountability, affirmation, acceptance. Four critical words when it comes to the dynamic space between me and you in relationships. It's going to be a little bit more intuitive if you think about it in terms of maybe a parent-child relationship like your relationship with your dad or your mom or your principal or your teacher or your boss. But you know what? These same four words are the dynamic at play in every human relationship. How do we get people, I mean the pragmatic question, how do we get people to do what we want them to do, <laughs> right? How do, how do we get uh, to a place where where we're behaving in ways that are mutually beneficial. Authority, accountability, affirmation, acceptance. Let me show you something. This is how the law works. And honestly, it is how most of us understand life is supposed to work. You work from authority. In other words, I have some position of authority. Um, I'm a parent. I'm a boss. Um, I'm maybe it's it's not a positional, but a relational. Like in, in a certain social setting, you expect to be given greater honor because of who you are in that space, right? You have some semblance of authority, and from that you expect to be given a certain amount of accountability. In other words, you expect other people to defer to your opinion. You expect them to submit, right? So um, in a parent-child relationship or a marriage relationship or whatever it is, the law comes in, the principle of the law is I have authority, therefore you're accountable. In other words, I have the right to tell you what to do. Now, now maybe I'm not that blunt about it. Maybe I'm a little more political. But there's still an implication that I have the ability, I have the right to tell you what to do, and you have the right to be accountable. And here's the thing, what, what, if you're accountable, I'll affirm you. Attaboys. I'll give you some attaboys if you submit, if you do good. Now, what do you get if you don't submit? Shame. Rejection. Condemnation. Correction. The only way to get affirmation is to be accountable to the authority. If you're not accountable to the authority, what you get is, yeah, I'm really disappointed in you. Yeah, I'm really actually kind of angry at you. I think I might even punish you. There are consequences for your behavior, and you're going to have to deal with those consequences. We use the fear of harm to push people back to this stage to make them accountable so that they can then receive our affirmation. So fear becomes an effective tool to control behavior. With the ever-elusive promise that if you do this enough, 
If you walk this path faithful enough, if you actually make this a habit of your life, you might actually reach the level of acceptance. But you never get there. It's just, we all need it, we all crave it, which is what keeps us driving for it. A distant father exercises authority, expects accountability, and always finds fault. An abuse of an angry father. A good father, you know, an earthly and a good father, um, uses affirmation and tries to be gentle with the correction. But there's always that threat, that, in, in that idea is if you just become the right kind of guy, then you will finally be my kind of guy. The effective tools. Fear of rejection. Fear of condemnation. Exposure of weakness. Exposure of limited power and strength. Now you're measuring up. Good job. Let's see more of that. Did you see how well you did compared to others? Did you see how well you did compared to who you used to be? The effective tools are fear, shame, pride. When we perceive that this is how God operates with us, we will then turn around and operate this way with others. This is how we'll parent. This is, I've even seen this in some ways, sanctified as Christian masculinity. That to be a godly man, what you are to do is exercise your authority, expect accountability, affirm obedience, and then give acceptance when somebody measures up. That's abusive. It's an abuse of power. When we do this, what we do is create insecurity in our children. Because they can never rest in acceptance because they're always having to perform and pretend to try to get there. And because they can never rest in it, it creates all kinds of internal turmoil, conflict, suffering, and pain that they will then act out on. Because you can't just sit in pain. It will manifest itself in self-destructive behaviors or abuse of others. when we try to use this paradigm in our relationship with God. It never takes us into a fuller experience of the life of God. It always leaves us insecure. Y'all, look at this. Grace. Is the exact opposite. Grace inverts the relational dynamics of the law. Grace begins with acceptance. You are absolutely secure. You are absolutely loved. You didn't earn your way into my love. You're not going to disobey your way out of it. I delight in you. I love you. I unconditionally accept you. You already have a place of sacredness with me. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be insecure about it. You are accepted. And that acceptance moves into affirmation, the communication of that love. You are not only loved, I communicate that love. I make sure you know about that love. I affirm you in that love, right? This is, this is the work of the Spirit within us to awaken us to, to the beautiful uh, uncomprehensible love of God given to us in Christ, right? You are accepted, therefore you are affirmed, and out of that affirmation comes the expectation of accountability, which is true always with love. In other words, we make ourselves willingly and joyfully accountable to what we love and to those that we love that love us. How else can you explain parenthood? You think parenthood is about making your kids submit to you? Uh Uh-uh. You're submitting to them. I mean, how else do you explain you getting up in the middle of the night to feed them? You laboring all day to to make their dinner, to clean their messes, to mend their clothes, to to work hard so that they can have 
a home to live in, and, and a college education, right? You are willingly submitting yourself to the needs of your children. Wait, Steve, kids are supposed to submit to parents. Huh. Love always demands submission. Submission is a bad word in our culture, but that's because submission is often used in this model as a tool of abuse. I demand submission in a model that expects submission to receive acceptance. That's an abuse of power. Submission is beautiful in the context of love. Submission is beautiful in the context of grace. We willingly and joyfully submit ourselves to others. You know why? Because when I love you, what do I want for you? The best. I want you to enter into the fullness and flourishing of life. I'm willing to give up my energy so you can be rested. I'm willing to give up my prosperity so you can be enriched. I'm willing to give up my security so you can be safe. I am willing to sacrifice myself for you. Why? Because love obligates love. I become accountable, not because it's demanded, not because I'm afraid of being rejected, not because I am full of shame and the exposure of my weakness. I become accountable because I love the one who loves me. And that imbues me with an authority that is so much greater than positional authority. It's relational authority. See, that kind of authority actually has the ability. So, so this kind of authority right? From authority to accountability, affirmation, and acceptance. What do you think happens when you turn your back and you're no longer watching anymore? You think they keep obeying? Not a chance, right? This kind of authority. You can go 30 years without seeing somebody and you'll never break that bond of loyalty when you fully are convinced that person loves you and you love them. That's a great Hallmark movie. That's grace. The authority that comes out of that is of a, a fundamentally different kind. And, and, and so as a result, this is the way God re relates with us. He begins with acceptance. He affirms us in that acceptance. He's accountable. He holds us accountable in the sense that, that love holds love accountable. And as a result, we gladly submit to his authority. And this results in the energy behind that is humble gratitude. I'm humbled by that love and I am overwhelmed by, overwhelmed by gratitude, which then awakens this energy to pursue and to follow. The principle of the law, it's just as dangerous to the Christian life as the covenant of the law. You don't have to go back and live under Old Testament principles to unleash that damage. You unleash that damage by employing that weapon. Instead, we live by grace. We stand in grace. We relate to God in grace, and we're learning to relate to others in grace. Now, let's take a look at the rest of our passage quickly as we see how this unpacks, right? So, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Spirit of God is in you. You are in the Spirit. And because you are in the Spirit, you are a son of God. I just want you to realize what an overwhelmingly unexpected phrase that is and what a position of honor so paul's original hearers they were roman christians right they were mixed up of, of roman gentiles and roman jews the roman gentiles would have understood the honor of this immediately because uh, in the roman culture they lived in a shame honor culture and their goal was to always be moving up the shame uh, excuse me the honor ladder and away from shame so they were always very aware of where they stood in the strata of society and whether they were in a position of honor and whether they were moving into a greater position of honor. In their thinking, to be a servant in a great house gives you great honor. Like they would have been impressed if Paul had said, you are a servant in the house of God. Because that would have meant you were actually covered with the honor of that house. You know what I'm saying? Like think about it like this. Um, uh, if you're a fan of a team and they're doing well, you like to wear their shirts. Why? Because you are covered with their honor, right? I'm not wearing a UK t-shirt today. Yeah? UK didn't do so well, right? The Wildcats were beaten by the Peacocks. 
Okay? Now, if I was a peacock fan, you better believe, full display of the tail feathers. Right? Right? Why? Because the honor of the house becomes my honor. I believe that it lifts me up. I move up the shame honor. honor. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't say we became servants in the house of God. He says we became sons. We're not sitting in the stands rooting this thing on. We're not even players on the court earning our way into it. We're in the owner's box. We're sons of the owner. We have full access to the entire stadium. We have a voice in the roster. We have an authority that comes with being a son, not simply being a fan. This is an overwhelming honor that the Romans would have understood immediately, and it would have been even more shocking to the Jewish readers. Because to the Jewish reader, man, you don't relate to God in that way. Right? When God revealed himself to the Israelites, when he, when he established the Mosaic Covenant, you know how he showed up? He showed up as a fire on top of the mountain. Like not a, okay, come warm yourself kind of fire. Like a, you get near and you're going to die fire, right? The mountain shook and filled the people with fear. And, and, and God commanded Moses, he's like, tell the people, don't even touch the foot of the mountain. Don't even let your cattle touch the foot of the mountain or they'll die. There was nothing inviting in that moment. When God revealed himself in the context of the law and said, if you obey, you will be blessed, and if you disobey, you'll be cursed, it was a terrifying revelation of his power, of his otherness, of his separation from us, not because of of him, but because of our sin. For the Jewish mind... To be a servant of God was the best you could hope for. Because a servant of God through the sacrificial system could potentially claim some measure of mercy. But to be a son? In fact, it was Jesus saying that he was the son of God that led to the accusation of blasphemy that actually put him on the cross. To the Jewish mind, that that a person would claim to be a son of God was of of such ridiculous impudence. Uh, It was so presumptuous that it was, in fact, blasphemy. And yet Paul says, if you're in the Spirit, you are a son. That's your identity. That's your position. And some of you are like, Steve, I'm a daughter. <laughs> I know. We're sons and daughters. But, but I want you to, when Paul uses son in this context, he's using it in the legal sense. Whether you're a son or a daughter, you carry the authority of the son. You carry the authority of the son because in that context, the son in the house had a unique position of authority and power from the father. Whatever your gender You carry that as a follower of Christ. You are clothed with that authority and that power, that privilege. Verse 15 goes on. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. God no longer wants, he never did. The law was a tool that was meant to awaken our need for grace. But, but I want to hear, God doesn't want you to relate to him in fear. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to lead back into fear. What is a slave always thinking about? Did I do it good enough? Did I measure up? Was I obedient enough? Was I thorough enough? Was I thoughtful enough? Was I timely enough? Because the, the servant is always worried about whether or not their performance will lead to acceptance. You were not given the spirit of slavery that leads to fear. Fear is not an effective tool to help you grow in grace. You were given the spirit of sonship. The spirit leads us to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. It was often a child's first word, um, and it, meant, it was very similar to our dad. Um, so when you say dad to somebody, 
I mean, it's a little bit different than walking up saying, oh, Father, hey, Father, right? When you say Dad, there's a level of familiarity to it, isn't there? There's a level of relational connectedness. There's a little bit of an assumption that you have some rights in that relationship, huh? You know what I'm saying? When you walk up and you say, hey, Dad, in that little phrase is implied a whole world of, of acceptance, of rights, of obligations, of history. The Spirit of God leads you to approach your Heavenly Father as Dad. Not as a master to be impressed. Not as an employer to be served. Not as a Lord to be bowed down to. But as Dad to be loved. What's a child's obligation to his father? Dads, what do you want from your sons and your daughters? Do you first want obedience? Is that really what you want? No. I know what you want. You want them to delight in your love. You want them to laugh. You want them to smile when they see you like their whole face to light up. You want them to, to just know how deeply and profoundly loved they are. You don't want them worrying about their behavior. You don't want them concerned about their performance. You don't want them always analyzing themselves to find out, did I say that right? Did I do it right? Did I, did I? No, you want them to be relaxed. You want them to be messy. You want them to be funny. You want them to be silly. You want them to be honest. that's love. You've been given a spirit of adoption, and the spirit leads us to cry out, Dad, Dad, intimate, familiar, because you've been invited not to perform, but to receive. You've been invited not to prove yourself, but to be freed from the need to prove yourself. Not to fear, but to the joy of humble gratitude. Verse 16, for the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. John 16, 8 tells us that um, one, of the, one of the functions of the Spirit in this world is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Um, the, the Spirit is the one who awakens people to their need for Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Okay? Um, the law is a tool that effectively takes you there, but it's the Spirit's job to use it. Does that make sense? So it's the Spirit who does that. The Spirit's role in the life of the believer fundamentally different. You know what the Spirit's primary role in the life of the believer is? To remind you that you are a son of God. The primary role of the job of the believer is to affirm your acceptance because we have such a hard time believing it. Because our hearts are so broken and so twisted by sin that we have a hard time actually believing we're loved in that way, with that kind of, of, of absolute, unjudgmental love. So the Spirit is continually working to remind us, you are God's child. You are in the family. You are invited to the table of grace. And it's a relational invest, investment and invitation as he labors within us to, to awaken that call of Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if we're children, we're heirs. Man, the good news just keeps getting better. Like, like you're not just, you're not a servant, you're a son. And with the son, comes all the benefits of sonship. You are in a royal lineage. The king of the universe 
is going to establish, he already has established, he will reveal the kingdom of God. And guess what? You're an heir of the kingdom. You are not a servant of the kingdom. You are an heir of all things. You are of royal lineage. In fact, you're not just adopted into the family so that you're the kid who sits in the corner who doesn't really belong, but at least I'm here. You're co-heirs with Christ. All the honor of the Son of God is now your birthright. Not because you earned it. Not because you're worthy of it. Not because you were able to get there. But because it was given to you by grace. And that will throughout eternity humble you. And that will throughout eternity thrill you. And that will throughout eternity fill you with an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Now we're going to talk about in this next section what that looks like now. What does it mean for us to carry the authority of sonship, to be heirs of the kingdom, to be conformed to the image of Jesus? What does it mean in this broken world? What does it mean where the kingdom of God has already been won, but it has not yet been revealed, where it's already been established, but it is not yet fully present? That's where we're going next. But for now, we're going to close there. And uh, I just want to leave you with a question. Um, what would it look like for you to step away from trying to prove yourself from being driven by fear, shame, and pride to just relaxing and being loved? Like for you to go through your day and stop worrying about what's the right thing to do. You're like, Steve, that sounds dangerous. I got a better question. Don't worry about what the right thing to do is. Ask what the loving thing is to do. Like what's the next loving step? What does it mean for me in this next moment for me to love God and love others? That's your moral obligation. That's the human job description. Stop worrying about whether you measure up. And just respond to love. How freeing would that be? And in some ways, how terrifying. Because it will mean the death of your flesh. We'll talk more about that. All right, I'm going to put up some reflection questions. Uh, For those of you who are new, this is new to you. This is the way we used to do it pre-pandemic. But we're going to create a space, kind of going back to this rhythm. I'm just going to give you a couple minutes. Don't freak out. We're not going to make you sit in silence forever because I know some of you absolutely hate the stillness of silence. Um, But I'm going to ask you just to read the questions and we're going to create a little bit of space for you to reflect and interact with God. And then we're going to share communion together and close in song, okay? So I'm going to put up some reflection questions. I'm just going to ask you to take a little bit of time between you and God to respond. And we'll be right back with communion.